Hey folks, Kenny B here. So what this is, is an unused podcast. So let me explain. The French label Spectrum asked us to contribute podcasts, not audio commentaries, but podcasts for their releases of the youth dramas Lonely 15 and Spacked Out. We did both and sent off four translation into French, which they did for Lonely 15. And that Blu-ray is now available in France with our exclusive podcast discussion on the film. However, the time-consuming process of making French subtitles out of our English dialogue meant time ran out and our spacked out discussion and review ended up not being used because of that reason. So it's uh, being put out here in our regular feed instead. We introduce ourselves uh, once I cut to this audio and follow the usual Podcast on Fire format. So I'm going to be brief here and say for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, including our back catalogue of this flagship show, Podcast on Fire, go to podcastonfire.com, listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. So this is current Ken handing over to past Ken and East Screen, West Screen's Paul Fox for a discussion on the Johnny Toe produced category free rated youth drama Spacked Out. Welcome to the Spectrum Blu-ray of Lawrence Lau's Spacked Out. And this is the Blu-ray podcast that's uh, going to discuss and review the movie and give you some background on the director. And my name is Kenneth Wilson. I co-produce and co-host the podcasts over at the Podcast on Fire network, including the flagship show Podcast on Fire that reviews Hong Kong cinema, new and old, uh, action or non-action. We do dramas and uh, comedies and crazy, sleazy stuff sometimes too. And I also write about the variety of Hong Kong and Taiwanese cinema over on SoGoodReviews.com and with me to talk this category free rated meaning adults only youth drama although it's not a cheap sleazy movie is Paul Fox of the East Screen West Screen podcast. Hello happy to be here and I am also not a cheap and sleazy film critic. And nor venturing to uh, anything with the triangle and the free within it um you you know which category three is for you uh, let's just say and uh, anything with uh, those uh, those uh, people called charlie cho is necessarily not for you but uh, if it's johnny toe doing category three not always not always i mean uh, <laughs> i you know what was the one he did with uh, chapman toe was was wasn't that category three flirting in thin air? Uh, floating in the air. It wasn't category three, as a matter of fact. But they um, they oh. they certainly uh, did their best to do category two be uh, uh, naughty comedy. So right, three D sex and sin. Did you ever watch that? Uh, I did. Yeah, that was a, that was a big one. That was uh, <laughs> <Joel Watson laughs> kind of kind of kind of a kind of a uh, an experience not to be missed. Um, so I, I did I did catch that one cinematically, as well as um, thirty three D Invader. But yeah, I mean it's. I, it's typically not my genre unless it's something that's really, uh, really funny. I, I like I like ones that are really, like really humorous, like the Gigolo. I thought was fun and uh, just outrageous and silly. So if it's along those lines, um, it, it might pull me in. So it doesn't need to be a sex movie just because it's category three, and certainly Spacked Out is not. 
this you've gone wrong wild movie that has a ton of softcore erotica it practically has none of that uh, so we'll, we'll get into the reasons why it's even rated category free uh, i can't say for sure so i'm gonna sort of ask my co-host here what his take is on uh, why it was given the highest rating in hong kong but uh, spacked out is from director Lawrence Lau, and it's from the uh, early it's uh, from from 2000 but i i sort of slotted into the early works of johnny toe's milky way image so i almost slotted into their into their 1990s output as they were starting out with beyond hypothermia and expect the unexpected the mission but we were in the year 2000 here we spacked out but milky way image they were still uh, they had hits they they did running out of time a year or two before but movies like the mission were not like in the box office of fire on fire, so they did romantic comedies to bring in some money to the company, and uh, were also experimenting with uh, having other directors come in, and I suppose that's where Spacked Out comes from, uh, bringing in a seasoned director in the case of um, Lawrence Lau and having Johnny Toe in the producing capacity only. So there's no imagery of completely still stylish triads and their conflicts here there's no cops and robbers dynamics uh, there's no simon yam or louching one here so uh spacked out really instead goes for the depiction of of the youth on the wrong track and uh they it seems like um going by credits certainly going by what you see on screen that the this was a group of girls that felt new and uh, nearly close to amateur actors, I suppose. Uh, well chosen to re- represent street girls, not prostitutes, but uh, girls who walk the streets and uh, could be believable. And even though these girls logged about seven or 12 movies respectively in their filmography, it really feels like a, a new cast, a fresh cast, an amateur cast. And it certainly wasn't the first time Lawrence Lau had dealt with that aspect, nor youths in that dark manner though because his debut feature was gangs from 1988 and uh, prior to that he had studied film production in america and he worked as an assistant director for Choi hak on tv and he directed himself but gangs was his first uh, feature movie and he depicted a gang of teenage boys the, the gang sort of disintegrating and that vision was dark it was kind of relentless and not uplifting whatsoever but it was sort of shot on a street level um real locations shot in sync sound as well and i'm sure lawrence uh, communicated his genuine concerns i suppose uh, and I, I i have some questions for you for about lawrence Lau, but i might as well stop there did, did you ever get, get to pursue gangs and uh, if so what was your impression watching it um watching it uh so so uh so long after it was made yeah i did i did see gangs um i thought it you know it, it's good for the sort of street level realism that it's trying to portray um some of some of the interesting things about uh, quite a few of of director Lawrence Lau's films are that they might be labeled as kind of like after school specials but for uh, a more adult level in that, um, you know, they're, they're, they're typically looking at, uh, you know, issues of society, issues in society, uh, where there are problems, whether they be, you know, uh, delinquent youths or issues with, uh, corrupt police or guns or drug use. And I think that he has a, a keen eye for doing some of that. Um, 
it doesn't come through in all of his work, and sometimes he's he's gone over to genres that really are not his speciality. Um, the one that kind of stands out in my mind is Even Mountains Meet, <laughs> yeah. which he did in, in 1993, which like is really film. just like an... It's a good film, but it's an oddball film for him. I mean, because it's so much more like a standard kind of genre film for Hong Kong cinema. It's a wacky comedy. It has musical numbers every now and again, and everybody are they're acting like loons. These uh, actors. So after having watched you know Lee Rock and Gangs, to throw this at a viewer, they might be a little bit shell shocked that uh, this was in the director. The film he does prior to that, uh, Three Summers with Tony Lang. It, it's you know, it's much more down to earth. And then that film comes along and it's like, whoa, we're kind of like moving over into uh, into nonsense comedy or mole tao, you know, uh, ghost movie genre area here. And, and it's like nowhere in his filmography to that point do you do you get a sense that uh, he really wants to work on in that more sort of traditional Hong Kong cinema genre. Do, is that more awkward? Do you think that do you think he had trouble expressing himself within those brighter, brighter genres, genres, if you will? It, it, there's an interesting story for that movie to be sure on, you know, how he got assigned to it or, or why he picked it up. If it was, you know, the pressures of the era, cause that's where commercial Hong Kong cinema was going, but it just really didn't feel like his voice was there. When you when you look at works like Gangs or Queen of Temple Street or the Lee Rock movies, you can find what I guess you would consider elements of of popular Hong Kong cinema in a lot of those. But those very much feel like his works because of the way he depicts his characters and and the way he uses camera work and and things of that nature. Um, so I think that, you know, when you look at a film like the film we're talking about today, and a film like Gangs, you can see kind of the direct correlation with a lot of what he's doing. Now, Gangs is, you know, as a freshman work, it's kind of rough around the edges. And, you know, some of the problem, there's problems with character arcs and things that I think are not always as clear as they could be. But I think that as you get into something like today's films backed out, you see how he's progressed as a director and especially working with young people and young people dealing with issues and getting those uh, narratives on the screen to come out and, and impact you as an audience member. It, it was certainly um, appreciated in, t- in terms of critics and awards because it was nominated for Best Picture and Best Director, but that year mainly belonged, and probably rightfully so, to Stanley Kwan's uh, Anita Moy Classic Rouge, because uh, that's you know an eternal classic. That's also a technical showcase, and uh, it's... Its atmosphere is alluring, and obviously uh, Leslie is in it too, so um, it's not like uh, this uh, deserved the best director or picture compared to Stanley Kwan's movie, but it was nice that a small movie got a chance to, to matter there during awards season. You mentioned Queen of Temple Street, which is a drama about prostitution starring Sylvia Chang, so there, there's your... The commercial star in in that one, and he, and he also scored a, a genuine hit with the two Lee Rock movies starring uh, Andy Lau, where his focus shifted to uh, police corruption. And I only saw the first one way back in the day because the second one didn't have subtitles. So I think I wasn't that engaged in the in that in the movie because I know I. I'm not going to be able to conclude this. Now that situation has been rectified, but back in the day, it, it's such a Hong Kong cinema home video crap fest that <laughs> that two movies that are supposed to belong together 
only one of them has English subtitles. So um, the, that was the uh, problem there. But um, I might as well throw over to you any spontaneous thoughts on uh, how Lao dealt in corruption but you know he scored a commercial hit at the same time because i i don't remember i don't remember if lee rock one was this super commercial movie that played to the audiences by being wacky in between the corruption stuff you know i remember it as a fairly serious movie with a young andy lau at the time so what's your memory of it how he dealt with um that material. No, I, it's it's a film I revisited recently because, uh, as some listeners may know, uh, there was sort of a revisit of the character with the film Chasing the Dragon, which uh, brought Andy Lau back as the Lee Rock character um, opposite uh, Donnie Yen. So in preparation for watching that in the cinema, I went back to to watch the Lee Rock films. And I really enjoy the first film. It's one that I think does a good job of portraying the era. I think um, Andy is uh, very good in the role. Do you remember, by the way, if they shot sync sound for Lee Rock 1? I don't remember... um, offhand because that would be neat we we we, we didn't uh, hear andy Lau that much in sing sound prior yeah, I, to i want to i want to i want to say no but i i could be wrong but uh you know it yeah as you mentioned the 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 sequel has existed on video for a while but um they had to redo it later on to get a subtitled version out there i was able to see the sequel um and the the first film uh, almost back to back when they got uh, some theatrical play and i didn't like the second one the second one uh, kind of, they bring in kind of they they bring in um Aaron Kwok in a role i'm a police officer i'm Aaron Kwok yeah it's it gets a little bit of uh gunplay going on and the the relations kind of weird if you, if you kind of understand the dynamic of you know who Andy and Aaron are as kind of the heavenly kings the roles they kind of put them into in that film and especially some because it's supposed to take place over the span of decades as Hong Kong's police force changes under British rule and the establishment of anti-corruption bureaus and things. Through the second film, they're really putting Andy with some gray in his hair and some makeup on to kind of age him. And it doesn't it doesn't really work all that well. They, did a, they didn't have uh, the team that worked on Andy's old age makeup way later in running out of time. Uh, but I gather right, that was like exactly. a, an external team from from elsewhere. Or if you look at him in in the Chasing the Dragon, where he's kind of actually aged into the role, so he looks he looks very different, um, but he still looks great. But yeah, I mean, I really enjoy the first one because I think the first one does a really good job of kind of portraying that early era Hong Kong. There's some really great art direction, and it's an interesting story. I mean, it's not completely based on. Um, history as as i understand it as i've kind of read elsewhere but it's it's a very entertaining story nonetheless and um i even like the spin-off that uh, lawrence loud did a, a couple years later with arrest the restless which happens in that same sort of lee rock universe with a couple of the characters yeah i never realized that because i remember the movie and it was very solid it was a 60s period piece uh, leslie chung and uh, charles uh, charles hung i believe um yeah that's interesting uh, I, I also remember it's one of those movies I, I i don't know why i remember this stuff paul but it's arrest the restless is uh, this movie where you see fruit chan 
in an acting role prior to his stardom as the director of Made in Hong Kong and Dumplings, but he's in there playing a fairly wacky character in Arrest the Restless. So, so it's one of those uh, Hong Kong cinema memories uh, for me. He could be Mr. Fun, as uh, demonstrated in the wacky Even Mountains Meet, even though it might not have felt like a Lawrence Lau movie. I, I had a good time with that. I sometimes worry that these wacky Hong Kong comedies will be too broad and too local and it was it will just fly over my head. But it had a, an energy about it that uh, generated a, a fa- fairly good time. He didn't do youth dra- uh, drama in, in this uh, dark way or throughout his career, because uh, he could do uplifting, sweet, youth, romance as well, without being fairly commercial and uh, sugary, I suppose, because 2001's Gimme Gimme, also for producer Johnny Toe, is one of my favorite Lawrence uh, Lau movies. Uh, it, it works as this mirror opposite, I suppose, to Spacked Out. It's still a new cast. Uh, some of them, at least now, are very famous. Uh, Choi Tin Yao is one of the actors in it. Uh, one half of Shine, uh, the pop duo Shine, re- regardless if they're active anymore. I believe he's one of the halves of that. And it was a, a warm, sweet movie about kids. And <laughs> who knows, Paul, if like after a decade uh, or 12, 13 years of doing sort of mostly dark dramas, maybe it felt, Lawrence felt like can I just do some sunshine in my movies for once and uh, but, but still stay true to my concerns I suppose uh, or my subjects I suppose and uh, I thought uh, Gimme Gimme was uh, a bit of a gem from uh, from producer Johnny Toe and uh, and Lawrence Lau uh, not a movie that's remembered now but uh, I certainly liked it uh, back in the day admittedly I'm not fully caught up with his work in the new millennium I, I did see his uh, warm comedy My Name is Fame that finally got Lao Ching Wan his first Best Actor Hong Kong Film Award, which was nice in the case of that movie, because he played essentially a struggling actor. And Lao Ching Wan, I think, during the early 2000s, he wasn't... The dramatic material was kind of off his radar for a bit, and he became more of a comedic actor, and I don't think that suited him in the long run. It seemed to be just comedies for a while, and it wasn't landing very well in the case of all his comedies but here came my name is fame which you know got him acclaim and i'm not saying the story necessarily was written to mirror his life but i don't know at the time i felt it was right and fun and sweet that he got the hong kong film award for that movie but it's also a very encouraging movie and uplifting movie and uh, it may not be that demanding or deep but i really walked away from my name is fame really liking the film and in the end liking the fact that he finally got a Hong Kong Film Award and it was destined kind of to be My Name is Fame. Uh, So I'll I'll throw over to you. Do you remember anything from that movie in particular that uh, stands out for you? Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I liked it. It was great that he got a win. I think it also introduced us to um, his co-star, Ho Si Yan, who it was her first movie at the time and she's since gone on to have a a pretty solid career since then, which is great. Um, you know, it was an interesting look inside uh, sort of the Hong Kong film industry and cameos, cameos galore. And also, you know, uh, it's it's always nice to have a sort of peek behind the things you love, but you always, you don't necessarily want to always see how the sausage is made, as they say. And I mean, story-wise, it was kind of following the A Star is Born uh, kind of narrative, but then it 
it, it, has, it has feet of its own. And I think if you're somebody who likes Hong Kong cinema and likes movies about movies, you will really get something uh, out of that film for sure. And I've seen a couple of the, uh, well, I've seen his tactical unit movies. I believe he did two. And these were not related necessarily, but they were, I don't know if you could define it as spin-off movies based on the Johnny Toe movie, PTU. They they don't deal in the same characters and characteristics all the time, but you, you can draw a, a slight thread towards PTU, I suppose. But they did like five of these uh, movies called Tactical Unit Something Something, and Lawrence Lau did two of those, but they, they weren't youth dramas, obviously. They were police thrillers, and uh, they, they were solid en- enough, I suppose. But uh, I wasn't that enamored with his co-directed drama, City Without Baseball, that he directed uh, with the filmmaker that calls himself Scud. And he returned to harrowing youth drama with Besieged City, which I thought fell flat. I did not think he had a handle on communicating that material he probably felt a bit preachy and uh, simply not effective even though he was pushing uh, it might have even been a category three movie if i'm remembering the dvd cover correctly but uh, i might be wrong so i'll throw over to you are you familiar at all with the with, with those movies the city without baseball besieged city or, and have you followed his sort of last three four movies you know he made a movie called ballistic with simon yam a movie called rock on and also a movie called healer dealer so did you stay in touch with the filmography throughout the years? No, not too much. I was not really interested in the tactical unit movies. Mostly those were kind of what you would call direct-to-video. I think they might have gotten uh, one or two-night uh, theatrical release at a couple venues, but I didn't keep up with those. The only things I've seen of his most recent work um, was uh, he does in the anthological horror uh, film series Tales from the Dark and Tales from the Dark 2. Um, he does have um, one of the segments as his. And here, too, he returns to work with um, secondary school kids. And he does the segment that is basically, um, it's called Hide and Seek. And it's school kids who are playing in uh, an abandoned schoolyard at night, you know, because why not, right? It's like, it's the thing to do. Uh, and of course, spooky things happen. Um, unfortunately, in the scope of, I think, all the stories that come out of the Tales from the Dark series, his is one of the weaker ones, not because it's technically bad, just because it's kind of doing things that um, anybody who follows the Asian horror genre will have seen before, you know, the, the, the kind of scares, the kind of things you do, especially in a schoolhouse setting. Um, they've been done time and time again, especially in Japanese horror but even in Hong Kong cinema, it, it, was, it was just seen as nothing really new, unfortunately. Um, Dealer Healer, I have started on a couple occasions, but I have not, not had a chance to get all the way through. <laughs> so I'm still, I'm still working my way through that one. And again, here, I think it's, it's dealing with a subject matter that um, is familiar territory when you look at something like gangs or spacked out, but I think it's trying to approach it based on what I've seen so far from a more reflective perspective. Um, so I do think that's interesting. It's just um, every time I've kind of sat down to start it, uh, something's come up and, and pulled me away, and then I've not gone back immediately uh, because, you know, it's, the, the source material has isn't really gripping. It's not something that I'm saying, oh, I must watch it now. 
Um, but it's there, it's in the pile, it's waiting to be watched. Uh, back briefly to Spacked Out, it wasn't nominated in Hong Kong uh, for awards, but at the Taiwan Golden Horse Awards, uh, the screenplay, the cinematography and editing was nominated, as well as actress Debbie Tam, who plays the youngest of the girls, Cookie, was nominated in uh, in one category, but uh, did not win. So we have reached our review and discussion of it, and uh, as for my short opinion of Spacked Out. I've seen it before, but it's been many, many years, and it still captivates me through this raw, natural style. And it seems like it's just a random couple of days where they drift from place to place, but Lawrence Lau, I think, is good at making this immersive and not um, preachy or like an after-school special, and uh, maybe that speaks to his experience by now, that, uh, ver- you know, versus gangs. Uh, maybe this has improved in that regard but but i think within all of this uh, th- there is a story about change about process hopefully progress and w- w- while i dislike certain antics of the girls you also wish them well and i think Lawrence Lau ultimately does um, when depicting these uh, topics and these subjects and he, he also uses the the, the new cost uh, or amateur cost in some instances, I suppose, as opposed to, to good effect. I think uh, he, he has a grip on that. So it, it's an effective one, at times a difficult watch, but not in uh, the expected ways a Category 3 rating might indicate, because uh, there is no nudity here, but uh, we'll get to our... Uh, I suppose, uh, theories as to why this got a Category 3 rating in a little bit. So I'm going to throw over to Paul. Uh, in short, uh, what did you think of Spacked Out? No, I think it's a it's a really good look into, um, again, sort of the culture of this era. And if you compare it with other films that are talking about this subject uh, material, especially uh, things come to mind like David Chang's Drug Addicts and you know some earlier films of Lawrence Lau's like Gangs, that you get to see how the culture kind of has changed, but how certain aspects remain the same in terms of who's really being affected here in terms of their class, their social status. Are they coming from broken homes? What kind of uh, family issues are they having? What kind of school pressures are they having? And I think that with a fairly new cast here, um, he gets some really amazing performances what really shines for me is that he knows how to create a fairly compelling story that in some ways bounces from character to the character, um, but it does so technically in a much more uh, nuanced way than I think gangs did. Um, whereas with gangs, I had a hard time kind of keeping up with uh, who was who initially. Here, I think he spends a good amount of time introducing each character, getting into the nuance of each character's personality and their relationship to the other characters, and then kind of telling a small story about each of those. Um, So it's not, I mean, even though sort of Cookie, um, the Debbie Tam character, kind of has a central focus, you still get to know each of the girls in turn and their personalities in turn. And it's 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 very it's much more fulfilling, I will say, in that aspect than Gangs was. Yeah, and and even though I say it's a random couple of days of drifting from place to place, you're very correct that Lao does inject that nuance and uh, and adds to character through this structure. And and as we said, he's not a crass exploitation filmmaker either. He's not here to 
perform gross scare tactics or anything here i mean sometimes you have to be in audiences faces to get your point across but he doesn't need to because he's good at pushing buttons without it being um, over the top or anything did you like uh, that period of milky way image from 96 up until this point where they were really they, they were starting out they were sort of defining what kind of movies they wanted to do but they sometimes veered off and made dramas such as this so amidst your expect the unexpected longest night the mission running out of time you had movies like this uh, spacked out so is that a memory for you uh, thinking back on milky way's first few uh, first few years so yeah i think it's a it's an interesting period to be sure there are some definitely some good titles uh, in that late 90s era although it doesn't appeal to me quite as much as uh, you know some some of the early 90s work you know and so some of those films tend to remain a little bit more classic in my mind than the the late 90s work with this film being kind of an outlier it's one that you can kind of look to and and as a film that kind of stands out but it has a story to tell and i think it's uh, again an important insight into uh, the culture of the time and you know it still holds up really really well i mean one of the things that was happening with hong kong cinema in this era the director uses it a little bit here it's um, some of the handheld video where they're kind of telling some backstory about a character who's cookie's friend named mosquito and you know how she's been kind of forced by her mom to go to this reform school and we only get to see her on in in these video shots and one of the things that sort of the look and the feel of, of this film and some of the intercuts to video reminded me of was that Hong Kong cinema, not too long after this, was really starting to move into video. And so you do start to get, um, maybe because it, it was a cheaper medium at the time than working on film, you do, do start to get quite a few productions that are shot on video, right? And I'm thinking of like your troublesome night 18s and, you know, some, some of the some of the you know movies that were almost expected to go direct to video rather than get theatrical release um, being shot on video rather than being shot on film. And you can still find these out there, you know, in various circles, um, discs. I don't think you'd find them new anymore, but you can find them used for sure. And so this was a transitional time period for Hong Kong cinema, technically too. Well, of course, your big budget films and especially stuff coming out of Milky Way was going to be done on film. But to have uh, a film like this, you know, sort of intercutting in some of that video look um, reminded me of the kind of changes that we're going through uh, in this era. And it's, I suppose it's the biggest bombastic, stylish statement in the movie that he uses the flashbacks in this way by shooting them on video. I, I found it really appealing and certainly not intrusive um, because he frames it initially with Cookie almost rattling off all the questions she has in her head to someone. It doesn't seem like an ongoing phone call, uh, but she, she has a lot of questions. Do you like me anymore? Do you want to break up? Where are you, mommy? And then you obviously see the shots of her friend and we get to have those blanks filled in. It, it could. It certainly could have been. My, my radar went off immediately. Oh my god, here's the art director coming in. But I think he he simply uses it in a non-intrusive way. It almost, because it's also handheld and the movie is often handheld but not blurry as such. 
it, it feels like one how emerges the handheld forward moving story with the flashbacks because they, they play a part of the narrative so it might not have been a huge risk in his eyes to do this but it could have also taken you out of the movie if you mix and match media too intensely and too frequently and try to make a stylistic artful statement with it i think yeah Lawrence lau has his eye focused on narrative here it, it almost acts like a atmospheric thing because it's a flashback and we we know it distinctly because it changes from film to video uh we, we recognize it distinctly that it's a flashback yeah and i, I thought it was fairly natural fairly immersive as he captured uh, these uh, flashbacks and also sad to a degree the more we find out about uh, the story and how these girls uh, feel inside about self-esteem and uh, about the future and uh, being separated because friendship is a a thing that grounds characters and uh, at least keeps the demons away for a little bit i suppose but and, and this friendship even though we don't see much of it it seemed to have meant something uh, quite um, uh, quite distinctly so i think he uses it uh, uh, fairly well so uh, and he, he's never really been this artistic uh, stylish director he never attempted to be one kawaii-esque i suppose so uh, you really don't expect that from a lawrence lau movie in your experience right uh, you're used to him doing straightforward drama with focus on characters right yeah and i mean i think for some of the way he films the characters you get uh Again, you get some 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 technical similar similarity to things he does in earlier movies, uh, particularly with gangs. But uh, I think that the, where this film is more successful is that he's able to he's able to make you understand each of these girls and kind of where they're at and what they're going through and the things they're dealing with, whether it's their home life or at school or their interpersonal relationships with each other the things that are important to them and and all within sort of the context of contemporary Hong Kong of the moment. Right. Because this was 2000 Hong Kong. And, and even, you know, today, two day, two decades later, the, the likelihood is that the youth of today are dealing with similar circumstances, but in a very different manner. Right. One of the, one of the interesting things that kind of stood out was there's a there's a small moment where there's a, a drug transaction or some kind of transaction that's happening between a character called KK and another character called Bean Curd. And one is handing money over to the other, and she's upset because the money is in RMB or renminbi, which is mainland China money. Um, and so the, one of the things these they're talking about is these girls are, you know, some of them are running goods over the border, um, you know, over to Shenzhen between Hong Kong and, and Shenzhen, because that's a way to make money especially with technology or, you know, other things that might be illicit. And uh, at the time, the Hong Kong dollar was a lot stronger than the renminbi. So nobody really wanted renminbi dollars. Of course, that's all changed today. So I think perhaps the reverse would even be true, right? That if maybe not exactly, but it's still it's interesting to see small details like this that that he chose to focus on and and how very relevant they are because of the you know way that times have changed do you think um you know looking at this movie but certainly others do, do you think uh, there was ever a point where he he was you know genuinely angry and wanted to 
provide a biting social commentary or, or, or do you feel Lawrence Lau is more concerned and, and shows his heart rather than you know his uh, fury because when I watch Spacked Out in particular I, I don't see the anger I see the concern he feels for characters like this even though they're not always sympathetic but they haven't put themselves in this situation purely they they are a product of uh, for instance broken homes and they don't wish for uh, to to drift and uh, and do these transactions as you talked about it's not necessarily their their wish and it's not the easy ticket into wealth or anything so so what do you take away from Lawrence Lau in terms of that? Is it, is it concern or is it anger, you think? I, I don't think it's anger. Um, and I, I do think he's trying to cast a, you know, a sympathetic eye on these girls and, and the situations they're in. And, and it's, again, to compare it with gangs, because that's, you know, his first work, I think it stands out more here because I had a much harder time kind of feeling any sympathy with the characters in gangs with the exception of maybe the character who's sort of the the central character at first, although later my feelings towards him changed uh, towards towards the end of the film. But um, here I think it's he's really unveiling a lot about these 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 characters and and getting you to feel for them and their circumstances, but also getting you to kind of root for them and their relationships with each other. In a way that, I mean, there's only a couple moments where I thought he was too heavy-handed. Perhaps the the main area, I think, is where there's a drug party um, a little bit, and I guess it'd be the third act of the film, and the character of Cookie is there, and she sees uh, a baby in a fridge, and then a little bit later, uh, a character kind of playing with this baby doll. It's a, it's a baby doll in a fridge. <laughs> Let me just be clear. It was an actual baby in the fridge. In, in a fridge, and then the character kind of playing with it. It's alluding to something that's that's very clear. I thought, ah, did I mean, yeah, okay. That kind of imagery, I felt, was maybe a little bit too pushy. But overall, throughout uh, most of the film, I think... Um, you know he's he's approaching it with a fairly light touch he's the girls get in situations where you know in a more commercial film in a film that was geared um towards to being more exploitative or sensationalistic you would have expected a certain situation to emerge from that um there's a scene where um the girls have gone to a photo shoot and it had been so long since i'd seen this movie i'm thinking Okay, wait a minute. Is this is this going to turn south, as you would expect in you know like a Girls Without Tomorrow film? Um, is this suddenly going to turn seedy? And 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 no, it was like okay, they're doing a photo shoot, and uh, there were you know people there on set, and there was a guy. He was kind of sleazy, but it it didn't go to that sort of next dramatic level that you would expect in a more exploitative or sensationalist storyline. So I think he, he he pretty much through the most most of the film he keeps a fairly light touch. Now that changes at the end, especially when we get into a sequence at an abortion clinic, which is very creepy, and a sequence that follows, which is very disturbing. Um, but I think is effective storytelling for the character involved. Mm-hmm. Very much agree, and 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 I do appreciate the documentary style through the handheld camera work it that doesn't seem like there's strictly strictly structured takes here where 
dialogue needs to be followed in a rigid way. I, I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure the guys needed to hit their marks. We, we certainly needed key plot elements to move forward through dialogue. But I, it seems like Lau and his cameraman made sure to give the girls space. Uh, but but never forgetting that even loose scenes are to act as uh, thread, I suppose, and and that creates the the notion that we we get little hints of story here, but he's not anxious to plant huge story beats to confirm to us that I I know storytelling, believe me, I do, and here's a big chunk of it. He seems very confident in just letting it unfold, dropping little beats here, and we're never really certain what events are going to move the story and characters forward or backwards because it's a bleak movie partly but having having them hang in their environments uh, m- much of which seems like the camera crew are crammed into real environments i mean there, there, there's a scene in a bedroom i'm willing to bet a dollar that's not a set that's a bedroom and you need to cram in a couple of people in there you know sound recordist cameraman maybe director <laughs> it looks like hell to shoot because it needs to look like a full room. I really like that about the movie that um, it uh, it feels uh, truly genuine uh, that way without it uh, being restrictive or anything. And they certainly shoot uh, on the Hong Kong streets. I mean, uh, for instance, you, you, you're a Hong Kong veteran. You've lived there. Do they shoot, for instance, Mong Kok as Mong Kok? Because they go to Mong Kok at one point. Or is it not easy to recognize? It's very easy. Uh, if, you, if you've been there, you can kind of get to understand where uh, the girls are at. I think a good portion of the time is spent filming in Western Hong Kong in the Tsinwan district, but they do go to Mong Kok quite a few times. And with some of the uh, more scenic shots, you can you can very easily see um, where they're at. There's a scene where they're like all coming down this very specific set of stairs. And that is uh, the Mong Kok uh, railway, the stairs that lead up to the MTR station or the East Rail Line. Uh, for Mong Kok Station now. And uh, yeah, it's very recognizable. It's um, I, I think spatially he's he's being very genuine with where would these girls go, you know, as, you know, teenage secondary school girls, what kind of things did they do? I think there's the scene with, um, I think it's Banana. She's uh, kind of meeting a boy she's met online and they're at a, a photo parlor, which you know, those kinds of places are still in vogue today. The technology's improved a bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, you go there and you take uh, these, you know, silly photos with um, all kinds of little emojis and cartoony stuff on them, and they print them out as these little stickers. And, and I'm sure, Paul, you have kept your entire collection of such photographs throughout the years. Right? I do. I do. <laughs> I, I have. Because you, you, you have kids, man. So I'm sure they wanted to do yeah. some Hello Kitty, Kitty emojis on top of photos and stuff. There's definitely stuff there that's an attention to detail and realism that I think from an outside, an outside perspective, you may not think it's a very big deal. But for a local person, that's going to say, yeah, this is really this is genuine in that, you know, this is what the kids are about. This is what they, they want to do. This is where they spend their time. This is what they spend their money on. Um, you know, they're going to go and they're going to sit in a dirty karaoke bar for a bit. They're going to play, um, you know, the dance dance video games like the girls do at one point. They're going to go hang out uh, at the pool because that's a fairly cheap option. They're going to go, you know, be at the library because the library is free, you know. So, again, 
not to push too much on, on this, the, the sort of social uh, income side of things, you know, and, and, and the class and whatnot. But again, a lot of the situation that these girls are in, it's because they come from certain economic backgrounds and because it's indicative of the kind of environment they're in, especially when they're from a home that doesn't have a domestic helper to have eyes on them all the time because the parents are working or because the home is split. Or as I think one of the girls even says, you know, oh, my parents just stopped caring. They gave up, you know, you know, because I was too much trouble. So, you know, I think that there's a, a definite, uh, a definite genuine feel that exists. And I don't know if that was something that the director was able to get into as early as the script drafts, or that was something that he was just able to sort of pull out of the girls themselves. He is uh, a veteran doing bleak stuff, of course, punishing stuff, uh, of course. And um, you, I haven't seen gangs in a while, and you certainly have. But the way he depicts, uh, for instance, the scene of self-harm in the classroom, where which doesn't get any sympathy from, in particular, the Maggie Poon character who played uh, plays a uh, bean curd uh, the, the girl with the shaved head it's simple techniques it's not technically distinguished to anything it's shot very uh, f- straight and full on but i think that's makes it all the more effective that uh, there's all of a sudden in that environment s- someone who is distraught to that uh, to that degree it never leads into thinking that the movie is too intense and is trying to make a point through being simply graphic or anything it's uh it's also i believe just a random girl that does this and uh, then it happens later for one of the main characters you you flinch a little bit because lawrence obviously it's a, a dull knife obviously so but lawrence just depicts it as it's not slow it's rapid cut 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 that stuff that makes you flinch man i mean i'm used to gore in buckets and that stuff makes me flinch and i think that's a testament to how that is staged and uh, and the type of intensity that that moment uh, uh, sort of deserves. Uh, uh, but 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 then we're quickly at various scenes of uh, hanging out and going to places. So it doesn't matter for their particular day in school, you know. But it's uh, it, it's an image that uh, still uh, stays with you, as does scenes uh, of uh, these. Uh, young girls you, you you sometimes have to remind yourself these are not old girls and uh, one of them is 12 years old i believe but but they're they're even in that mode where they they're comfortable flirting and being sexual and kind of carelessly slump stumbling into potentially vulnerable situations and they, they, there's a wonderful sort of untampered uninterrupted take with i believe angela Ao, who takes her date andy home and at one point, she has to lead him through the living room where her mom is doing her uh, makeup or brushing her hair. And she just wants to walk past her mother because that's obviously a, a home that is not filled with positivity as such. And she's sad for a moment. And then she brightens up as they flick through their funny photos that they took. And then they have a little honest uh, mildly uh, sexual encounter. It doesn't lead anywhere on screen. I wanted to single that out because I think it's technically a moment that uh, that thrives because it's Lawrence's camera catching moments uninterrupted, and also he, he gets these uh, acting beats out of his actors, and uh, it feels uh, 
It feels genuine, as simple as it is to just look down and be sad. Then look at your photos. That makes you happy. But he gets uh, this natural vibe out of the actress, um, actress despite. But uh, you have to remind yourself that these are children. And that gets to you every now and again. That uh, I don't want these children to uh, be in these situations. But uh, it's the current current ticket in life, I suppose. Uh, all without resorting to category-free stuff. We, we talked about that. Why this is even a category-free movie if it's not... Uh, if it's not uh, erotic or extremely graphic. And my only theory, I don't know that much about how you define category free, um, the category free rating if uh, there's no erotica involved, because that's the automatic category free rating. But my theory as to why this got this adults only rating, it's the mix of drug use, language, and a fairly graphic scene of self harm later in the movie so that's my fears uh, i was wondering what you thought uh, was uh, the content that led this to be rated adults only yeah i think it's in part because you have um a scene with characters that are clearly identified as minors i think um at one point they say that uh, cookie's age is actually 13 you know they're very openly engaged in not just drug use because i mean you do see drug use in other films, um, I, I think um, there was some minor drug use in uh, Gangs, as I recall, and also in uh, Queen of Temple Street, there's some drug use. But here, um, it's almost procedural <laughs> in, in a very short scene. One of the things that I do recall from uh, some of the censorship standards in Hong Kong, at least, you know, and again, these things change over time is that certain procedural things like certain almost how to how things are done are problematic for the censor bureau so for example in the the chai and fat film triads the inside story which is not an overly violent film as triad films go um, but it has a category three rating because it initially showed uh the i think almost all of the initiation ceremony into uh, a triad group and that was considered you know a no-no by the the censorship board so they gave it a category three and and so here i think it's it's a similar thing although i i do wonder this the the very sort of next to last sequence we get which happens in a clinic um is it, it, that might also be push, pushing some boundaries for that era yeah with the on-screen uh depiction of uh, of the procedure procedure i suppose yeah. uh, it's not like milky way were opposed to even touching the category for rating in 1987 even though it wasn't a box office smash but they did a a movie called intruder with uh, wu chien lian who and it's a it's a horror movie a bit of a torture porn movie in a way but a very good movie uh so they, they, it's not like they, this was commercial suicide uh, for them uh, or anything to play with the free of it all so um uh, they i mean they, they were struggling to make it a like this commercial empire and had to resort to making albeit fun and allow sammy chang or rom-coms and that got them some money and then they built on that and and i mean speaking of milky way do you think they um they would have ever even approach filmmaking like this today or, or is that too experimental compared to where milky way are today as an entity 
I mean, because they're working mainland China too, so there's those restrictions. Uh, so uh, do they keep more? I mean, they did Trevisa, which I know at least brought in new directors and younger directors, but I don't know how experimental the story was in Trevisa as such. Yeah, I mean, it's. I guess you, you could look at Trevisa as sort of experimental, um, uh, particularly because of, and a little bit controversial because of the, some of the directors they brought on. But I, I don't know if Hong Kong cinema has the, I, I don't think it's in a place where it can make films like this anymore unless somebody's willing to make it on their own dime. Uh, I just don't think that the producers have the kind of faith in Hong Kong cinema that they did in the 80s or the 90s or even the 2000s um, after the handover. Um, today, I think uh, a lot of the faith, at least from the producer side of things, has has really changed. I mean, if it's something that's going to get play up north, then the likelihood is it's going to get a green light. But if it's something that's going to be controversial in any way, shape or form, or is going to be deemed as artistic and your name is not Wong Kar Wai, then I don't think you're going to get a green light on it um, unless you've already got the funds in the bank. Everything goes through stages. But uh, we we were talking uh, an era here in 2000s where the automatic sort of stance wasn't to look towards mainland China for the majority of your productions that year as a company. They they were still making Hong Kong films for the Hong Kong market. So there's obviously that change as you as you talked about. Just some minor notes on uh, on performances and I, I like the 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 more lighter sweet touches because uh, Lawrence Lau hints at infatuation the sort of first love infatuation cookie at one point uh, follows around this uh, character called uh, uh, Lung Lai Yi she's uh, she's older but um, they, they meet her at the swimming pool and uh, she eventually follows her to this uh, classroom where there's information and brochures about uh, possibly being an, an exchange student and Lung Lai Yi is uh, being interviewed and has answers for that why she wants to go to japan uh, for an exchange program and i I love the little touch where cookie she has her own answers in her head to this why she would go would want to go somewhere it's rather sad paul because the default answer she has to herself as she she provides these answers there they're about that i can't and i've never wanted and what's the point really for me to think of uh, any future prospect and Lawrence Lau does this in voiceover but but it's a clever placement of voiceover and the voiceover doesn't run rampant in the movie anyway and it was a clever way of touching upon her sadness she she is resigned to have the same fate as at the age of 13 as the age of 17 if she even reaches 17 who knows it's a moment where where the actress I think earns her nomination in a way too because she's very good, uh, Debbie Tam. Uh, she she has to look for the role, but she can emote uh, without uh, resorting to emoting, you know. And she and she the the sort of ta- the work in tandem with Lawrence Lau as he puts together these sequences on set and then in the studio for the voiceover. It really is one of the shining moments as uh, he shows the cogs working internally in such character. And, and you just said that uh, that she's decided that uh, she's no good 
And I know that's part of growing up. That uh, and you think that's uh, nothing else is going to happen. It's just bad, 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 and a downward spiral. And uh, it isn't like that. But um, I don't know. It's a it's a well chosen uh, moment for such a sometimes intrusive device like uh, like voiceover. So uh, the, that's my sort of second acting moment that I think stands out um, amidst the girls and, and they're all and they're all good and they're all natural in their roles but I think uh, Angela Au and Debbie Tam's moments the, the bedroom scene and this scene I think uh, that's a standout uh, standout confirmation that these actors are within sort of logical dramatic range they they don't go off the reservation with uh, with the anger and uh, they're not awkward as they get into dangerous situations or have to play the lighter touches either so really appreciated that um so i might as well ask uh, anything any moments stands out that stands out from from uh, the little acting troupe here that you that you thought was uh, well executed i mean it's it's got um you know lots of little moments but be- between characters uh, throughout that i think uh, uh really stand out nicely um some of the moments between the um uh, the character of uh, Tofu and um, her girlfriend, uh, what's her name, Sissy, I think. Or yes. no, that's the actress's name. Uh, they they have some nice moments throughout, and you can kind of see how their relationship uh, initially starts out, and and how that that kind of changes over time. And I think that uh, Banana uh, has some very strong moments as well, just on her own. Uh, one of the strongest moments I think is is the very final. Uh, message uh, of the film that despite some dour events that have happened um, in the third act um, there's a there's a kind of hopeful message uh, with the the sort of ending scene with the cookie and it it makes me it makes the film a bit more endearing whereas I think another film that might have ended on a dour note uh, would you know been a far less appealing yeah, I suppose that confirms that Lawrence Lau isn't here to just poke, 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 and this is life. Deal. Ending credits. <laughs> <laughs> so you're right. That's why I always came out of spacked out, thinking that his heart beats for these characters and he doesn't see doom and gloom everywhere he goes. But he's honest about what they do go through. And and I agree that the latter sections that go into these manifestations of... Uh, cookie's internal train of thoughts and that's then manif- uh, manifested visually before us because she, she's thinking about uh, a baby stylishly the movie hasn't done this that much and i don't think the drug party scene is uh, the excuse for this because it doesn't seem like cookie has ingested whatever type of drug they they have ingested or taken a lot of pills and she, pills and she's not walking around in a daze and oh there's a baby Ooh, i have a baby in me like she she seems uh sober if anything and that um he, he pushed a little bit too hard but it didn't make me care less for her plight if you will so it, it just stands out that a and that scene was intense anyway. So it was a bit edgy. The sort of drug den that they've gladly walked into, I suppose, because it's not the first time. At least uh, the majority of the time, uh, the majority of the girls uh, do drugs. So they're, they're, they're stages to life, and uh, they don't need to be all uh, negative. And I think that that's what um, Lawrence Lau leaves us with. And I think uh, the way he 
does so is not uh, manipulative and too sugary. He's um, he is matter of fact with it in a way that we we we're not necessarily ready for the fact that oh my god it ended in a positive way. He kind of throws it at us, and I don't mind that choice uh, after having been subjected to uh, tough and edgy stuff to sort of go boom. This can happen. Look at him. Oh, and uh, we we sort of shooken out of our days. Uh, sh- 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 shaking out of our days a little bit. Oh yeah, it can be okay. It looks like it's okay now. <laughs> so I don't know. It's it's one of those. Uh, it looks simple. Uh, or, you know, you you shoot it in a simple way, and if you edit it in a certain way, then you can get the desired reaction out of an audience. Uh, you know, having gone from high to lows and then to a little bit of a high. So uh, so no wacky freeze frame ending. If you're, if, you know, the trademark of Wong Jing here, but uh, there's certainly a little trick here as the credits uh, roll, and um, it's uh, it's neat, it's uh, well done. So uh, you you don't think of the fact that you watch the category free movie necessarily considering how it ends, <laughs> you know, like oh this was an adult movie. <laughs> so yeah, it's um it's neat and it holds up uh, after after so many years. Like neither. Lonely 15, as we've talked about, Nordis, they haven't aged in that in any particular way where it's uh, distracting that fashion is too is old fashioned and technology is old fashioned. I think that they overcome such things quite easily because the stories are the focus rather than um, their particular phones or their particular fashion or anything. Um, so I don't know. It's uh, it it never got to me the fact that oh, so two thousands yeah, I, I never got that feeling you know. Yeah, no, I think that there's one there's one moment which may date the film a little bit is that there's a scene where the girls are riding on the bus to I think they're heading down to Mongkok, and they see the big long uh, Tingma Bridge that goes over to Lantau Island and to the new to the new airport. And they shout at the bridge something about Leon Lai and and they miss him or something. And um, then they say some lines. And I I tried to do a bit of digging to see if that was a reference uh, to a song of his or something. And the only thing I could come up with is that he did a song called Happy 2000 in the same year that this film came out. And in the music video for that song, um, he actually is... Um, shooting some of the scenes for that music video on the Airport Express, which also goes along the the Tingma line um, and runs to the airport. There, it's it's one of the newer newer MTR train lines. My guess is that it's might be a reference to to that video or or a song from that album from that was from the same year or maybe something else. But um, that that's my guess because I could not for the life of me figure out why they were shouting about Leon Lai and the Singma Bridge and uh, why are they why, why are they not talking about the other heavenly kings that are much better <laughs> damn it girls damn it yeah I think it for the content and for what it's showing for the era and even technically it holds up uh, really really well the subject matter may not be for everybody but I think it's it's presented in a way here that's not too heavy-handed um so that People will be entertaining and they will find good performances uh, with the girls as well. There is a movie that I can't really recommend because I haven't seen it, though I've talked to people who've seen it. That sounds like it's along similar lines that was done in 2015 called Lazy, Hazy, Crazy. Um, It is also a Category 3 film 
and uh, I believe it is about uh, school-age girls and, you know, discovering their sexuality and other things. So it may bear, bear some similarity uh, to this, but um, I, I honestly can't speak a lot to it because I haven't seen it myself. But I've heard uh, from people who have seen it that it's not all that great, but it is something that's along the lines of, you know, this same kind of genre if you're looking for something that's a little bit more updated um, that goes along with this film. And I could also, I can recommend one film um, from around the same time period, and that is the 2003 Singaporean film by Royston Tan uh, called 15. It is the number 15, uh, which was his first film. He's done a couple films since then and made a bit of a name for himself as a Singaporean director. But this film, 15, uh, follows uh, a handful of teens who are gang members in uh, Singapore. And um, it, is a, it is an acted piece, but he pulled these kids, you know, who are real gang members um, to, to fill out these roles. Wow. And um, it's got very similar themes and in some ways a very similar technical style. Um, to spacked out and if again this is something that um, you're is of interest to you and you haven't seen it you can try tracking that down as well uh, but uh, let's uh, let's uh, finish this uh, one off then uh, thank you everybody for for listening and i uh, ho- hope you got something out of our uh, discussion and uh, hope some information was uh, of interest to you and the context uh, talking of uh, older films and uh, newer films and um, i hope our review notes uh, uh, played some importance to um, to to this discussion. We um, we did the best we could at the best of our abilities, trying to research these things that are not hugely documented through extensive making of documentaries and the like. But uh, regardless, I uh, hope to speak with you all soon. And uh, for podcast on fire, my name is Kenneth Bosom, and with me was Paul Fox of the East Screen West Screen podcast. Bye bye. <laughs>